pain has reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News and World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. Did you know that pain has reached epidemic proportions? It really has. The Institute of Medicine estimated in 2011 that 100 million people are living with chronic pain. That's a third of the population. Pain impacts our quality of life, diminishes financial well-being, and certainly affects us emotionally. Did you know the risk of suicide nearly doubles for those with chronic pain? Sadly, it's understandable. I have patients who tell me that pain has robbed them of their lives because they can't do those things that make life worth living. Even kids are suffering. Imagine having a sick baby in the ICU exposed to a hundred painful procedures and getting little to no treatments to soothe them. This is happening. In fact, 20% of children experience chronic pain, and millions don't get the relief they need. If you look across the globe, the story is the same. In places like Canada, Uganda, and India, millions suffer in pain at the end of life. Imagine yourself or someone you love dying in pain because they don't have access to morphine, which costs less than a half a loaf of bread in India. Do you know or did you know that the World Health Organization estimates that pain threatens to condemn one in every 10 of us alive today to die a painful death? I think you can understand why this has become a pressing humanitarian cause that demands focused attention by the press and policymakers. On a previous show, we heard from Judy Foreman, nationally syndicated health columnist and author of A Nation in Pain. She talked about how pain erodes the foundation of who we are, touches all of us at some point in our lives, and how she overcame her own struggle with unbearable neck pain. On today's show, we'll take a closer look at Judy's book and delve into specific topics like gender in pain, opioid wars, exercise, and innovative emerging therapies. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, Purdue Pharma, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Millennium Laboratories, My Life Patient Program, and DC2 Healthcare, Atlantis Health Group, The Pain Community, and Depot Med Incorporated. For live online listening to Aches and Gains, please go to paulchristomd.com. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. Through 40 years of journalism, Judy Foreman's career is outstanding. She's covered all sorts of medical and science subjects, from cancer and heart disease to fitness and nutrition. 
Her nationally syndicated columns have been carried by the LA Times and the Dallas Morning News, among many others. Let's meet her again now. Judy, welcome back to Aches and Gains. Thank you very much. You have a great chapter in your book called Opioid Wars. And, you know, it talks about the demonization, if you will, of the use of opioids in this country for pain control. Uh, For example, the Centers for Disease Control released a report a couple of years ago uh, about the epidemic of overdoses involving prescription opioid pain medicines. And it really blames rampant overprescribing by doctors and other professionals for this sharp uh, uptick in deaths that are related to opioid abuse, leading the government and the FDA to effectively reduce the supply of these medications. What did your research tell you about this? 70%, and this is from the government's own data, Mm -hmm. 70% of the opioids who wind up in the hands of abusers don't come from doctors. They don't come from pill mills. They come from your medicine cabinet and mine and everybody else's or from friends. So they they are diverted. They're not you know, um, they're not obtained the right way. That's true. And here are some other facts. I mean, for example, in five out of six cases, those people misusing opioid pain medicines said that they got them from sources other than their doctors. And in the majority of these situations, uh, these medications were given or sold to the person misusing them by a friend or family member. And also, listen to this, previous research uh, by the CDC found that 60% of most people who died of overdoses in involving opioid pain medicines, didn't have prescriptions for them. That's right. And what, what also never or rarely gets mentioned in the press is that uh, of the opioid deaths, and there were 16 plus, 16,000 and a little bit in 2010, according to the Centers for Disease Control, mm-hmm. we, we think of those as opioid only, but, but only 29%, less than a third, were just opioids. The problem with the abusers is that they take benzodiazepines and alcohol and a whole bunch of other things along with the opioids, and yet it's the opioids that get vilified. Exactly. So, Judy, based on your research, how do you feel we can recognize these two competing forces. On the one hand, the huge epidemic that we have of chronic uncontrolled pain in this country and really beyond this country. And on the other hand, the perceived epidemic of opioid misuse and abuse. I think we need more people like you. Thank you. You know, doctors on the front line who uh, of treating pain patients, and they have a very, as you know, a very, very tough time because they're afraid the Drug Enforcement Administration will come after them. They they're afraid they will get in trouble one way or another. Right. And um, and and some of them do, and they get crucified in the press as well because there aren't many medical writers. Uh, like me, who go into both sides of the problem. The, the, exactly. The, the emphasis tends to be only on the abuse, not on the actual problem of pain. Mm-hmm. I think we just need to keep hammering away that this is a much more complex problem than the public recognizes. Um, and that then involves a lot of people speaking out. It does, and I hope that more and more people speak out. Let's now shift. Let's talk about what pain looks like, because it's often invisible to the eye. That's right. What did you learn from writing your book? Well, yes, and and, and uh, pain patients themselves call it the invisible disease. I, just last week I was at a, a meeting of a pain support group here outside of Boston, and this looked like it, it, it could have been people going to the opera or the movies or something. They look like regular people, mm-hmm. and they are regular people. Um, and But then when they opened their mouths and started talking about their pain, you know, they are pain patients trying to have an identity be Beyond that, but but struggling with all that. Yeah. 
you can't always tell from the person's facial expression how much pain they're in or not. In fact, there's an interesting piece in the book talking about how doctors actually are less good at telling by someone's facial expression than lay people. I think because they get so inured to pain and are so cautious about, you know, trying, you know, they, they don't know whether to believe the person or not. Um, lay people are better at sort of picking up things. And there's some interesting studies on you, on people being able to tell when a person is faking pain. They actually get the, the grimaces and the distortions of the facial muscles. They get the timing of that wrong if they're faking. Right, right. <laughs> so it is possible to pick up the fakers. But I don't want to focus on the fakers because most people in chronic pain are not faking. No, they're not faking. Have you ever wondered whether women or men are more susceptible to pain? We'll find out after the break. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and this is Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, the global leader in medical technology, alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for millions of people around the world. Teva, the leading global pharmaceutical company, committed to increasing access to high-quality health care by developing, producing, and marketing affordable generic medicines, as well as innovative and specialty pharmaceuticals. Millennium Laboratories, a leader in the science of toxicology and pharmacogenetics, is transforming the way healthcare professionals monitor and manage their patients' medication therapy. Through the use of advanced technology supported by research and education, Millennium helps practitioners personalized care for patients. For more information, please visit www.millenniumlabs.com. My Life Patient Program and DC2 Healthcare, connecting patients to top physicians in the United States, reaching the highest standard of patient care through research patient programs and gains in overall health. For more information, please visit mylifepatientproject.com and dc2healthcare.com. Welcome back. We're fortunate to be speaking with Judy Foreman, award-winning journalist and author of A Nation in Pain. You know, in Chapter 4, you you, uh, talk about a number of studies that look at the concept of gender and pain. What did you discover? Oh, that that it's very lopsided. Women get a lot more of the same pain conditions that men can get. Women get more than their share. Women get the chronic pain prevalence in women is about 45%. I mean, that's almost half. Uh, and in men, it's 31%, yeah. which is almost a third. So it's not trivial in either case, but women get much more of it. Um, it's unclear why. Um, there is some very interesting stuff about hormones in the book. In general, it seems as though testosterone, which is the hormone that predominates in men, protects against pain, and estrogen is all over the yeah, place. Yeah. Um, sometimes it protects, sometimes it makes it worse, and it, you know, it varies over the menstrual cycle, over the life cycle. It, that's been a nightmare to try to figure out. Um, although there was one interesting preliminary study in Italy, which to my knowledge has not been replicated, but it involved transgender people. And when they went from male to female and started taking estrogen, their reports of chronic pain went up. And when they went the other way from female to male and started taking testosterone, their reports of chronic pain went down. I agree. I think that that was an intriguing study that was done on uh, transsexuals uh, because further exploration will allow us, hopefully, to manipulate hormones like testosterone or estrogen to help reduce pain. I have a lot of female patients that tell me that many healthcare professionals and physicians never really believe they're in pain. And I think that does happen more with women than men. There are some data from brain scans showing that women's limbic system 
the part of the brain that processes emotions actually does light up more with pain than men's. So women often present their symptoms in a more emotional way, and that turns doctors off, male and female doctors. So one suggestion for women in particular is to like keep a pain diary and, and note down and write down at what activities or position, body positions seem to make pain better or worse, what times of day, any other triggers that seem to influence it. So you can present some more or less objective data when you go to the doctor. Absolutely. You know, I have had many patients feel that tracking their pain is helpful. And in fact, uh, I did a show on that topic. It's called Tracking Then Taming the Pain on my website, paulchristomd.com. And, and in the show, we talk about um, a step-by-step process to assess the occurrences of pain, uh, test new approaches in dealing with pain, and then determine what helps and what hurts. Judy, let's now talk about the mind, the body, and pain. I mean, you know, time and time again, patients will say to me, other doctors have told me that this is all in my head. What's your opinion? My husband, who was then my boyfriend, is a psychiatrist, and whenever he would say, why don't we meditate? I would say, you think this is all in my head? (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't. He kept trying to explain to me, which I finally, finally, months later got, yeah. that there are uh, there is a huge overlap between pain and depression and pain and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it used to be thought that the depression came first, then the chronic pain, and that does happen or some uh, a non-trivial amount of the time. But by and large, it's the other direction. The pain comes first, then the depression because of the pain. Um, That said, there are a number of things that involve no drugs, just mental activity, particularly meditation and hypnosis. Uh, What meditation seems to do is help you dissociate the emotional response to the pain from the plain sensory um, acknowledgement and experience of the pain. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that those therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnosis, meditation, are really underutilized by those who have pain because I think there's a lack of awareness of their utility. And there are studies that document their, uh, their ability to alleviate pain. Okay. Uh, Judy, let's now talk about the debate with respect to medical marijuana. You have a chapter called Marijuana, the weed America loves to hate. But I would say this, I think it's the weed America loves. What do you think? Marijuana used by itself is really a very safe drug for most people. For adolescents whose brains are still developing, as we all know, uh, there's there's some concern about um, schizophrenia, raising the risk of schizophrenia or exacerbating it if you already have it, mm-hmm. or causing or, or exacerbating cognitive problems. Um, that data is uh, worrisome, but not, um, in my mind, a total deterrent. Um, and for for pain, it seems to be it seems in general to reduce pain by about thirty percent, and that's kind of in line with the opioids. I think it's it's a very useful adjunct, and from my talking with with pain patients, they don't abuse it. They tend to take one or two puffs, just enough to get the pain under control, so they can do their job and and you know run their house or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, uh, marijuana it has been used. F- for many different purposes, for more than, I think, 12,000 years. And really, it's it's one of the oldest documented medicines in history. And as you mentioned, it can be useful for pain, specifically neuropathic pain. That is, you know, shooting, stabbing, burning pain from certain conditions, like, um, like multiple sclerosis, for example. There is some concern, however, about 
the consequences of heavy use and actually marijuana addiction now. I'm wondering, Judy, would you have considered using medical marijuana for your own pain had it continued? (laughs) Well, I forgot about it. I mean, I'm old. I didn't even think of it. (laughs) (laughs) It it never occurred to me. Uh, It's just not in my world. I did, but then I went to a a medical marijuana conference in Rhode Island a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. I was blown away by, it was a very high-level scientific presentation as well as sort of an advocacy thing. Um, And I did get one dose of marijuana. I tried it. Frankly, personally, I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I talked to a lot of people who found it the only thing that helped them. That's true. We're going to talk about neuromodulation, that is spinal cord stimulation for pain, when we come back from the break. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and this is Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by The Pain Community, a web-based nonprofit created by people living with pain. Check out paincommunity.org for information, references, advocacy tools, and a premium section to securely interact with other members in forums and chat rooms. DepoMed Incorporated, a specialty pharmaceutical company focused on developing and commercializing products to treat pain and other central nervous system conditions. Purdue Pharma, making a positive impact on healthcare and on lives. Reminding everyone to safeguard medications in their home. Atlantis Health Group. Atlantis is a comprehensive multi-specialty physician group committed to enhancing the quality and process of healthcare delivery across the country. Visit AtlantisHG.com. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter or like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. Welcome back to the show. We're here with Judy Foreman, award-winning journalist and author of A Nation in Pain. Judy, let's now talk about some emerging therapies, some exciting therapies for pain that you write about in your book. And let's talk about spinal cord stimulation, also known as neuromodulation for the treatment of pain. That's a pretty invasive procedure. You have to be in pretty bad pain to want to go through all that. Um, But that does seem to have some some real advantages, as as does um, do intrathecal pumps, Mm -hmm. which, as you know, know, inserting a, a little pump for... Uh, the medicine into your the area around your spinal cord. That can be very helpful as well. Let me start with spinal cord stimulation. That's a process of using tiny doses of electricity to stimulate the spinal cord. That, in turn, we believe, prevents pain from being transmitted from the spinal cord to the brain. What's exciting about this technology is that in animal studies, there is a suggestion that the use of spinal cord stimulation is capable of blocking as well as reversing a process called central sensitization. That's the medical term that describes changes in the spinal cord that lead to pain amplification following an injury or seen in chronic pain conditions. So it may be that the use of spinal cord stimulation after injury or early in the stage of uh, neuropathic pain conditions like complex regional pain syndrome may prevent pain from developing or limit its intensity or duration. Now, with respect to pain pumps, as you mentioned, there is evidence that, that, that pain pumps are useful for treating cancer pain that's, that's intractable to other pain therapies, and some evidence that it's useful for treating non-cancer pain like failed back surgery syndrome, that is, persistent back pain and leg pain following spine surgery. 
Now let's take a shift. Let's look at transcranial magnetic stimulation. What did your research tell you about this? Sort of new to being used for pain. It's been used uh, more for depression, and Mm -hmm. that's non-invasive. No one's sticking anything into you, and that's huge. It is huge. This is a device that electrically stimulates the brain without the need for surgery or other invasive treatments in order to manage uh, chronic pain. And In in this case, uh, the brain is stimulated by a coil that's applied to the scalp. And today, there's a little bit of evidence that suggests that it may be useful in providing short-term pain relief. Now let's talk about a major chapter in your book, exercise. That's one of the strongest chapters in the book. Exercise is a great preventive. Regular exercises are much less likely to get chronic pain in the first place. Mm -hmm. And once you have chronic pain, people who exercise um, do much better with it. And they're often surprised. Yeah. When you're in really intense pain, you are afraid to move. Right. You sort of have to get over a psychological hump. A lot of people don't like exercise, period, let alone people in pain. That's right. Now, how about Botox? I use it successfully for migraine headaches and in studies for thoracic outlet syndrome. The doctor injected it into my trapezius, like in my shoulder, and then the part of it that goes up into your neck. Mm-hmm. It hurts. And it seemed to make it worse for a week or so and then better. And they use it a lot for dystonia, like I had where the muscles were so constantly spasming that um, I couldn't pull my head back up. Right. Now, how about adenosine for pain? Adenosine is a natural substance made in the body that is a natural pain reducer. The interesting thing to me about that is that acupuncture, at least in mice, acupuncture seems to release adenosine. So that is sort of another check mark for acupuncture because it may not be that acupuncture just works through endorphins, right. but it may work through triggering adenosine as well, mm-hmm. which would be great. As far as I know, that's only been shown in mice, but it's powerful in mice because they presumably aren't subjective to the placebo effect. <laughs> that's right. You also explore complementary and alternative medicine approaches in your book. And you specifically talk about sham acupuncture versus real acupuncture. What did the research tell you? Yeah, that's been really a nightmare for the field because uh, there's been a number of studies that show that sham acupuncture, in other words, fake acupuncture, uh, produces the same results as real acupuncture, putting the needles in the wrong places or pretending to put them in in a way that the patient would think they were in produce pretty good results. But more recent studies seem to show that the real acupuncture is more effective than the fake, as one would hope. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a big study from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York showing that acupuncture is is really much more than just a placebo, that it really is a, a decent pain reliever. That's right. And there's some exciting research on the transplantation of fetal brain nerve cells from mice into the spinal cords of adult mice with neuropathic pain. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's been done in California. Mm-hmm. They've done it in animals. They're now trying to work with human cells. In fact, that's what, when you take Valium, that's what boosts GABA. Yeah. And that seems to be effective at reducing pain. Yeah, it's very hopeful. Judy, what did you gain from writing your book? I'm just uh, so much more impressed than I even was before with 
how big a problem this is and how many people are struggling with it and, right. and how hard they're struggling. And that includes doctors like you who are pain medicine specialists because they get grief from all over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the patients are hard because they're, they're suffering so much and the regulatory stuff is so hard and it really takes a lot of heroism. So I'm, I'm even more convinced than when I wrote the book of what a, what a big problem this is and, and how much it affects people's lives. It really does. And on behalf of the pain medicine specialists in this country, I want to thank you for acknowledging us. What can you say to those who, who've lost hope and worry that life as they knew it is over? Well, I think the important part of that sentence is the as they knew it. It It is a difficult problem, and the suicide risk for chronic pain is twice that for people without pain. So yeah. that feeling of hopelessness is not unique. You know, a lot of people with pain have that. Mm-hmm. In an awful lot of cases, that hopelessness is too extreme a reaction to it. Pe- people can get help. Right. I think it really involves finding the right doctor, and there aren't enough right doctors around. There's only four or 5,000 pain medicine specialists in the country, and mm-hmm. with 100 million people in pain, that, that's not enough to go around. But I think trying lots of different things is really the answer. If everything you try reduces your pain by 5%, maybe you can get it 50% less. Mm-hmm. Being with people who believe you and respect you for what you're going through, I, I think that's huge. It is huge. Judy, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and this is Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Tom Blair and Ty Ford. Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.